all his life in this farm? Well, I don't know whether he was born here or not, but the man who moved up here around 50 years ago, probably, and uh, I know his dad uh, more than 40 years ago was when he used to haul potatoes in town. I'd say he was more or less a pleasant man who would uh, be a nice man to talk to or somebody would like to have around. He seems to be harmless, fellow, you know. Was he ever married or have any more? Well, he'd been single all his life. Uh, had you ever been in the man's house? No, sir. Never been in there. Welcome back, guys. Thank you once again for joining me on this episode of Follow Me Into the Dark. Once again, I am your host, Michelle, and today we are talking about a real sick one. Just a heads up. His nicknames include the Grandfather of Gore, the Ghoul of Plainfield, the Plainfield Butcher, the Plainfield Ghoul. So, have you ever heard the name Ed Gein? If you've never heard of him, you are in for a real treat today. Matter of fact, I bet you have heard of him, but you just don't realize it. Gein was the inspiration for some movie killers, including Norman Bates from Psycho, Leatherface from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and even Buffalo Bill in The Silence of the Lambs. Now, you've probably heard that some of those characters were based on a true story, but maybe you don't know the actual story behind the person that those characters came from. Of course, the actual storyline of those movies aren't real, but the characteristics, personality, mannerisms, those are all inspired by a real person. And, you know, a lot of great writers, they get their inspiration from real life monsters. And Ed Gein is one of those monsters. Ed Gein isn't necessarily known for the amount of killing that he did. He is known for the things he did other than killing. Now he technically is not a serial killer, depending on what criteria you go off of, because of the number of kills he had, which was less than three or at least that's all that can be proven. Now the FBI defines the term serial killing as a series of three or more killings, not less than one of which was committed within the United States, having common characteristics such as to suggest the reasonable possibility that the crimes were committed by the same actor or actors. But regardless, like I said, There are some creepy habits you could say that Ed Gein had, and those habits are the things that inspired those movie characters that I just mentioned. So let's start back at the beginning. Let's go back to Ed Gein's childhood. You know, whenever we're talking about these psychopaths, these serial killers, we go back to their childhood to try to understand their upbringing and if something came from something in their childhood that would have sparked some of these crazy psychos. So Ed Gein was born to George and Augusta Gein in La Crosse, Wisconsin on August 27th, 1906. Now George and Augusta had two boys. There was Henry George Gein and Edward Theodore Gein. 
Henry, Henry Gain, his brother, was seven years older than Ed. Now, Augusta was a fanatical religious woman. She had a very strict moral code. She taught her boys the Bible daily. She warned her boys about loose women and immorality and really pounded it in their heads how morally wrong sex was. Um, she really wanted to discourage any sexual desires that they might have. She seemed to be the type of mother and wife that was very domineering and controlling. They did what she said, and she forced her beliefs onto her sons and husband, knowing them to be the only way, the truth. It was her way or nothing. Now, George, the father, he was an alcoholic. And like I said, Augusta was the stern, strong, domineering woman in the family. So George had no say in how the boys were to be raised. Augusta actually despised him. Um, she thought of him as just a worthless piece of shit. He couldn't hold down a job. And she didn't feel he was even fit to be a good father or a good influence on the boys because he was just such a loser. So she took it upon herself to take care of the house, the kids, and she also had to bring in the money. So when Ed was born, she started a grocery business and was able to make money to support the family. And with this money, she was able to move the whole family outside of town, away from all the immorality and the sinners that were in town, wanting to get her boys away from all of that to protect them. So in 1914, they moved to Plainfield, Wisconsin, to a 195-acre farm where she could keep her children isolated. Matter of fact, the nearest neighbor was about a quarter of a mile away. So their mother tried very hard to keep her kids away from the outside world, keep them in this bubble to protect them. Um, but they did have to go to school. Now in school, Ed, he did average. Um, I guess he loved reading. He loved adventure books and he liked that he could read and let his imagination go wild and escape to a different world. He also got made fun of in school just because he was very shy. You know, he lacked those social skills um, and he had a droopy eye too. I guess they made fun of him for that. So he didn't have any friends. But even if he tried to make friends, his mother would squash that. She didn't want him to have any friends. So of course that made him sad, but he also looked up to his mother very much. She was his everything and he did everything that she said. Even though she was never really pleased with them, she verbally abused them. And she thought that her boys were just destined to fail like their father. During their teen years and their early adulthood years, they both remained very detached from the outside world, staying there on the farm, and they only had each other for company. Let me just express again just how strict their mother was with them. She saw all women in the outside world as floozies and didn't want her sons to have anything to do with them. She really kept them away from all of the so-called impurities of the world. Now, as we know, when we dive into the backgrounds of a lot of these serial killers, there tends to be 
somewhere at some point in their life where sex came across in like a twisted way or they were aroused by something twisted or abnormal in their upbringing um, or they're they weren't really taught properly about sex um, they didn't get that healthy discussion from their parents such is the case with ed i don't think augusta sat down and had that motherly birds and bees talk with her sons as a matter of fact when ed was 12 she caught him masturbating in the bathtub and she proceeded to dump hot water on him to punish him and show him how unpure he was now I'm guessing that when they say she dumped hot water on him, it wasn't just, um, you know, a nice warm temperature. I picture it as being probably scalding hot. Um, She must not have known that cold showers are what you need to do to get rid of that arousal, right? But there was also a time. Ed was not supposed to go to this area where the animals were slaughtered. And one day he trespassed in that area while his parents were there slaughtering pigs. He came across them slaughtering pigs. His mother was in the process of gutting a pig. She had cut down the midsection. She had blood all over her, guts hanging out. Um, And this is when Ed, when he witnessed this, this is the first time he ejaculated ever. So here's the connection with something grotesque and his sexual mindset. Now, who knows if it was the blood and guts that turned him on or the sight of seeing his mother doing what she was doing, um, the blood covering her, the whole act somehow turned him on. There is something that triggered something sexually in Ed. And as we continue to talk about him, we will see a lot of strange acts that he carried out that are not by any means normal. Let me also point out that Ed claimed that he was a virgin his entire life, up until the day he died. Now, remember back then, our views on mental health were much different. What psychiatrists thought, their knowledge, their research, their ways of thinking, how the world was, was a lot different than what it is now. Understand, back then, even homosexuality was considered a mental illness. So when Ed was found doing some of the things that he was doing, that we're about to talk about, I'm sure the doctors um, that evaluated his mental health weren't sure what to make of it, because it was definitely outside the realm of normal, And the transgender tendencies that he was showing was definitely unheard of in that day and time. And, you know, if it was just him dabbling in transgender, in the transgender world, um, if it was just, you know, expressing his want to be, um, you know, the opposite sex or just being confused about his sexuality, that's one thing. But... It wasn't just him being confused about his sexual orientation. That is not what I'm getting at here. And you're about to find out that Ed Gein was a whole nother level of batshit crazy. So let's continue. 
1940, Ed's father, George, died of a heart attack. So both of the boys began to work odd jobs to help financially. They were known to be reliable and honest by the community. They both worked as handymen. Ed also would often babysit for neighbors, and he liked babysitting. He was more comfortable around children than adults. Again, his social skills and maturity wasn't quite where it should be at his age. Now, Ed's older brother, Henry, about this time, was starting to get concerned about Ed's attachment to their mother. This is the time that Henry started that realizing that maybe his mother's point of view wasn't the way of life. It wasn't absolute. Didn't necessarily have to be the only way. So Henry would start speaking ill of their mother right in front of Ed. And of course, this upsets Ed. Again, Ed saw their mother as pure, wonderful goodness. And so Henry, starting to speak of her in a bad way, really upset Ed. Moving forward to May 16, 1944, Ed's brother Henry dies mysteriously. Ed and Henry were both fighting a brush fire, and it's actually unknown how the fire even started, and it was very close to the farm. According to the police, Ed and Henry went in different directions trying to put out the large fire. During their struggle, night fell upon them and Ed lost sight of Henry. And after the fire was put out, Ed supposedly became very worried about his brother missing. And that's when he contacted the police. So the police organize a search party and it turns out Ed leads them directly to the missing Henry who was dead on the ground. And was kind of odd that he was able to lead him right to Henry's body. So the police were suspicious about some of the things that surrounded Henry's death. For example, Henry was lying in a piece of earth that was untouched by fire, and he had bruises on his head. So even though Henry was found in strange circumstances, the police just dismissed any foul play. And that's pretty much because they didn't think Ed, nice, reliable, shy little Eddie, was not capable of killing anyone, especially his own brother. And the coroner did list asphyxiation as the cause of death. So now, it is only Augusta and Ed on the farm. It's Ed and his mom. And this must have made him very happy. That's all he needed, just his mom. For a year, Ed and his mother lived alone together in the big farmhouse. Her health deteriorated and her moods would blow hot and cold. Sometimes she would berate him and accuse him of being a useless failure like his father. And other times she would talk softly to him, tell him he was a good boy and even let him sleep in the same bed as her. But it wasn't long after that that he ended up losing his mother as well. On December 29th, 1945, Augusta died after having a series of strokes. So Ed's world is just completely flipped upside down. He is devastated. This was his one person in life that was his friend, his mother, his world, and now he is alone. So Ed stays on the farm after his mother dies and just worked odd jobs, made enough money to get by he closed off the rooms that his mother used the most. 
Mostly it was the upstairs floor, the downstairs parlor and living room. He kept some kind of shrine in those areas, untouched and preserved for four years. He lived in the lower level of the house where the kitchen was, and there was a small room just off the kitchen that he used. Um, That was his bedroom. And one of his hobbies included reading death cult magazines and adventure stories, but those weren't his only hobbies. Some of his other favorite things to read were anatomy, anatomy books, and he read these books on headhunters in the South Seas. He also read things about Nazis and their torture methods. He loved these strange stories so much that he would even tell stories to the kids that he babysat. Now, his favorite thing to read in the newspaper was the obituary section. We're going to start getting into some of this creepy stuff that old Ed took up now that he's alone on the farm without his precious mother around, without his family around. This is where things get pretty creepy. From his strange reading interests, Ed learned the process of shrinking heads. Word actually got out that Ed had a collection of shrunken heads. Um, On one instance, someone actually visited his farm and asked him about it. And they became the subject of talk. And some thoughts were that it was just a story. Some people thought it was just fake. Um, Some strange costumes. Now, Ed claims that someone from the South Seas sent them to him. No one took it seriously. Not until a woman by the name of Bernice Warden disappeared a few years later. But this is just one of his strange hobbies. And where did he actually get his heads? Well, Ed would read the obituaries and figure out the recent deaths of local women. Now, like I said before, he never had a girlfriend, nor did he ever have sex. But he started going to the graves at night and getting bodies and body parts. Later on in his confessions and trial, Ed did say that he never had sex with any of the dead women that he dug up, stating that they smelled too bad. But he did do other things with them. Between the years of 1947 and 1952, Ed made as many as 40 visits to three different graveyards to dig up recently buried bodies. Now, there was a particular type he was looking for when he was grave robbing. Typically, he was looking for a woman, middle-aged, that reminded him of his mother. What was he doing with these bodies, you ask? He would remove their skin. He would remove their body parts for various reasons. He had quite the collection of body parts. He wanted to create a woman's suit, meaning a suit made of woman's skin because he felt like he wanted to be a woman. He actually wanted a sex change after his mother died. Now this act of him putting on women's skin was described as an insane transvestite ritual. Ed was very curious to know what it would be like to have breasts and a vagina. He very much so wanted to be a woman. Like I said earlier, it's taking it to the next level, right? You know, he saw the power that women had over men. And, uh, you know, at least that was true in his own house. The way that his mother had the power over 
their dad and them. Now those shrunken heads that someone um, or that the townspeople were talking about and they were just dismissed as fake ones um, you know and he said it came from he actually said it came from a cousin in the Philippines is um, more specific is what he said. And when they found them, when the police found them, it turns out that they were found to be human facial skin carefully peeled from cadavers and used as masks by Ed Gein. And how were all of his morbid trophies discovered? A house of skin suits and body parts? Well, in November 1957, a Plainfield hardware store owner by the name of Bernice Warden disappeared. The police had reason to suspect Gein, and this is because Warden's son told the investigators that Gein had been in the store the night before she disappeared, saying he was going to return the following morning for a gallon of antifreeze. And the sales slip from the antifreeze was the last receipt written by Warden on the morning that she disappeared. So now investigators show up to Gein's property. They find her decapitated body hanging upside down from a ceiling beam. She was gutted like a deer. When they found her head, it had nails hammered through each ear and tied together with twine as if he was getting ready to hang it up like a trophy. It was found that she was killed with a 22 caliber rifle and all of her mutilation was actually after she was dead. So detectives spent all night and the next day going through his house. Now I'm gonna do a little rundown of all the things that they found when they searched his house. And this is fucking disgusting, okay? Just a heads up. If you already listening, if you already listen to my show, you know from the past, there's things that are a little sensitive and grotesque. I mean, you get that with these kind of podcasts, right? Um, but I do just wanna give you a heads up that we're going to go into some more graphic things here. Going to chat about some, uh, well, just he's just a sick fuck, okay? So this one's going to be a little more disgusting than others, maybe. Let me tell you about what he had in his house. Here we go. They found four noses, whole human bones and fragments, nine masks of human carefully preserved and mounted in a bizarre collection bowls made from human skulls 10 female heads with the tops cut off human skin covering several chair seats mary hogan's head in a paper bag we haven't talked about her yet but i'll get to her bernice warden's head in a burlap sack nine vulvas in a shoebox Yes, I said vulvas. He had skulls on his bedposts. They found organs in his refrigerator. Lips on a drawstring for a window shade. A belt made from human female nipples. And a lampshade made from the skin of a human face. And even hanging up in the closet was a shirt made of human skin, complete with a pair of breasts. So he was obviously arrested and taken to jail, where they interrogated him. And at first he denied everything. 
but then he did finally crack. I don't know how he could possibly deny anything. It's in, it's in his house. They just busted him with all that weird shit in his house. Anyways, when they questioned him, this is when he admitted that over several years, between 1947 and 1952, he made as many as 40 trips to the cemeteries to get his body, um, to get his body parts. And he claimed that he was in a day's leg state. He even claims on about 30 of those visits, he came out of that day's while he was at the graveyard and he left and went home empty-handed. Gein admits robbing nine graves and he actually led investigators to the locations. Police exhumed the bodies of eight women and found that they had all been mutilated. Body parts, including faces, breasts, genitalia, strips of skin had all been removed by someone and then carefully placed the bodies back into the coffins and replaced the earth as to avoid any suspicion. Gein continued to tell detectives about how he would wear the human skin shirt around the house at night, and he often placed the female genitalia over his naked groin as if he were a woman. Again, Gein was very confused with his sexuality. Upon further questioning, Gein also admits to shooting Mary Hogan, who was a local tavern operator, and she had been missing since 1954. Now, here's a little hiccup in the whole process of the conviction. One of the sheriffs allegedly physically assaulted Gein during the questioning by banging Gein's head and face into a brick wall, causing Gein's initial confession to be ruled inadmissible. This sheriff died of a heart attack in December 1968, only one month after testifying at Gein's trial. Many people who knew him said that he was traumatized by the horror of Gein's crimes, and that this, along with the fear of having to testify, led to an early death. One of his friends said that he was the victim of Ed Gein as surely as if he had been butchered himself. Now, there was many missing people during the 40s and 50s in this area, and investigators suspected that Gein could have possibly been the culprit of these missing people. There was four in particular that baffled police. One of them was an eight-year-old girl, Georgia Reckler, and she disappeared coming home from school on May 1st, 1947. There was hundreds of people searching for her, hoping to find her, but she was never seen or heard of again. And there was no good suspect. And the only evidence was a tire mark that came from a Ford, which by the way, Gein drove a Ford. And the case was unsolved. Um, it was opened again years later after Gein was convicted of murder. Another girl disappeared six years later, and she was 15 years old. Her name was Evelyn Hartley, and she was babysitting, and she vanished. Apparently, her father was worried about her whereabouts and went to find her at the house that she was babysitting at, and the house was locked up, except there was a back basement window that wasn't locked. There was blood stains found around the area, a sign of struggle, so he called the police and the police did find those blood stains and the sign of struggle. And there was a bloody handprint on the neighbor's house. Um, 
And a few days later, the police found some bloody clothing that belonged to her on the highway outside of La Crosse. Now, two other people that were missing were two men in November of 1952, and they stopped off for a drink at a bar in Plainfield on the way to go hunting. Victor Travis and Ray Burgess were at the bar for a few hours, and then they were never seen again. They pretty much just vanished. Now, like I said earlier, remains of the tavern keeper, uh, Mary Hogan, was found on Gein's property. It was winter of 1954 when she went missing. They suspected foul play because blood was found on the floor of the tavern that trailed out to the parking lot. And there was also an empty bullet cartridge on the floor. They never really knew what happened to her and only speculated. That is, until they actually found her head in a bag at Gein's farmhouse. Now, the other people that went missing, these four other people, really the only thing that they have in common is that they were all from the same area. Remember, when he was interrogated, Gein did admit that he killed um, Mrs. Warden and said that the other body parts in his house, he said they all came from his grave robbing. He said he was in a daze for most of these events. He does not recall dragging Warden's body to his Ford truck, taking, he does recall, sorry. He says he was in a daze for most of these events, but he does recall dragging Warden's body to his Ford truck, also taking the cash register from the store. And he took them back to the house. He does not remember shooting her in the, he- in the head, which was the cause of death. So he admitted killing Mrs. Warden, who was shot in the head with a 22 caliber rifle, and then dragged outside to his car, transported back to the farmhouse, and then later he confessed to the murder three years earlier of Plainfield innkeeper Mary Hogan. Now, Ed showed no signs of remorse or emotion during the many hours of interrogation. When he talked about the murders and of his grave robbing, he spoke very matter-of-factly, even cheerfully at times. He had no concept of the enormity of his crimes. November 21st, 1957, Gein was arraigned on one count of first-degree murder in Washara County Court. Ed Gein a sexual psychopath. His sanity was in question, and at his trial, he pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity. Gein underwent a battery of psychological tests, which later concluded that he was indeed emotionally impaired. Psychologists and psychiatrists who interviewed him asserted that he was schizophrenic and a sexual psychopath. His condition was attributed to the unhealthy relationship he had with his mother and his upbringing. Gein apparently suffered from conflicting feelings about women, his natural sexual attraction to them, and the unnatural attitudes that his mother had instilled in him. This love-hate feeling towards women became exaggerated and eventually developed into a full-blown psychosis. Found mentally incompetent and thus unfit to stand trial, Gein was sent to the Central State Hospital for the Criminally Insane, which is now the Dodge Correctional Institution. 
is a maximum security facility in Wampen, Wisconsin, and later transferred to the Mendota State Hospital in Madison, Wisconsin. In 1968, Gein's doctors determined that he was sane enough to stand trial. The trial began on November 14, 1968, lasting only one week. He was found guilty of first-degree murder by Judge Robert H. Gallmer, but because he was found to be legally insane at the time of his murders, he spent the rest of his life in a mental hospital. Also, according to the judge in the case, he said, quote, due to the prohibitive costs, Gein was tried for only one murder, that of Mrs. Warden. Now, while Gein was locked away, he was known to be very docile and obedient. He was a patient who spent most of his time in occupational therapy, rug making, stone polishing. He developed an interest in ham radio. The head nurse said, if all of our patients were like him, we'd have no trouble at all. But some of the female staff members recall feeling very uncomfortable. Um, they would find Gein staring at them a lot. On March 20th, 1958, while he was still locked away, um, his house burned to the ground. Arson was suspected. Um, pretty much it's kind of thought that, you know, the townspeople, you know, they kind of uh, were under a spotlight with all this that have gone on. And, uh, you know, they didn't really like that. They didn't like what, uh, obviously, they didn't like what was going on there. They didn't like that that's what they were known for now. So, most likely, it was just, a you know, a bunch of townspeople that decided to burn it to the ground. Um, when Gein learned that his house was burned down, he just shrugged and said, just as well. In 1958, Gein's car which he used to haul the bodies of his victims, was sold at a public auction for $760, which nowadays would be like it's like 6000 It was sold to a carnival sideshow operator, Bunny Gibbons. Gibbons later charged carnival goers 25 cents admission to see it. Come and see the ghoul car in which Ed Gein transported his victims. On July 26, 1984, Gein died of respiratory and heart failure, failure due to cancer in Goodland Hall at the Mendota Mental Health Institute. He was buried in Plainfield Cemetery, right next to his mother, and only yards away from the graves that he had robbed 30 years earlier. His gravesite in the Plainfield Cemetery was frequently vandalized over the years. Souvenir seekers chipped off pieces of his gravestone before the bulk of it was stolen in 2000. The gravestone was recovered in June 2001 near Seattle and is now in a museum. So, the Plainfield Butcher, the boogeyman himself, Ed Gein. Sick, twisted Ed Gein. He is a perfect example of the nightmarish consequences that can follow a warped childhood. When you think about it, Ed was a victim.
of his mother's twisted ways. And it's unfortunate. And, you know, we can go into the whole nature versus nurture. This is a good example of that. You've got this domineering, crazy mother who's super strict. And um, you wonder if that's what turned him into what he was. But this is a good example because you're looking at two brothers born to the same woman, same household, same upbringing, same rules. And you've got one that went down the path of being sick and twisted and disgusting. The other one, although he did die young, who knows, maybe he would have grown into some sick, twisted, disgusting, perverse acts too. Who knows? But uh, his upbringing definitely had something to do with how he turned out. I mean, you got to see that. So anyways, uh, Ed Gein. Ed Gein, the inspiration of Leatherface. You can see that uh, if you have not seen the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Um, Just some of the characteristics that they took from that is the the skin making you know chairs and stuff out of skin you see in psycho norman bates that that really unhealthy very odd relationship with the mother uh, preserving her room as a shrine after she died um that's where that came from buffalo bill and the silence of the lambs remember you know it puts the lotion on the skin he's getting skin to make his suits um from the women so you know that's where all of that came from uh interesting so you might not have known who ed gein was even though you really kind of did that's ed gein guys thanks again for joining me there will be a bonus episode this month since it is halloween um there'll be an extra episode on halloween weekend also i will be popping over to my husband's podcast the rock brigade show He doesn't do anything creepy like me. He's uh, all 80s and 90s rock and roll. Pretty interesting if you like that kind of music. But we're doing a little crossover show that weekend. And um, I'm going to pop over there and do some true crime in the rock world. So um, we'll be doing an extra show with that as well. And so anyways, that was it. Thank you again for joining me. Again, um, go hit subscribe. Give me a five-star rating. I know it seems silly, but it really does help. I appreciate it. Um, Thank you to all the new listeners. Thank you for joining me. And I will talk to you again in a couple of weeks. And until then, stay dark, my friends. Bye.